Welcome to the New Mexico News Podcast, headlines and stories from the land of enchantment. Brought to you by KRQE. Here's Chris McKee and Gabrielle Burkhart. Nearly three years ago, New Mexico confirmed its first case of COVID-19. We have presumptive positive tests for three New Mexicans for COVID-19. And these are all folks who have travel-related exposures. I think a lot of us remember those early days. The hope was initially that the shutdowns would slow or stop the spread of the virus. And maybe it would be just a few weeks and things would quickly carry on. But we're unafraid to make decisions that protect us. And so we're doing them in the time frames that we think get us to this containment issue. So three weeks with schools, this containment issue. Gatherings of less than 100 get us to this containment issue. Asking businesses to adopt telework policies help us get to this issue. We know that that didn't necessarily happen. New Mexico will fully reopen July 1st. That's the final decision from the governor after more than a year of COVID restrictions. And the federal government as well has had its ongoing pandemic response, but that won't happen for much longer. Specifically in May, the Biden administration says it will officially end the U.S.'s emergency public health declaration. While the country is making its transition into the next phase of the pandemic, so too is New Mexico, perhaps in a more subtle way, but it is notable. I'm really impressed with the level of readiness I'm seeing as I uh, talk with people in the state. The man who's been a pillar of much of the decision-making and explanation of the state's pandemic response, Dr. David Scrace, is retiring at the end of the month. So in some ways, Dr. Scrace was like New Mexico's Dr. Fauci. We know the governor sometimes said that as well. There was Dr. Scrace week after week for more than a year as the top medical official for New Mexico We'd hear from during these news conferences all about what the virus was doing, what health measures the state was taking. Officially, Dr. Scrace was the secretary of the state's human services department, then later taking on the interim Department of Health secretary role. And this week, he's joining us one more time on the podcast ahead of his departure from state government. Dr. Scrace, thanks for being here again. It's great to be back with you all. And uh, it's great to be back at a time when we have so many tools to fight the COVID virus. And I, I sort of feel like we've pulled out ahead in some ways. There was a time during the peak of the pandemic when things were constantly shifting. It seemed like you and I were on a Zoom call almost every week talking about what new changes the state was implementing or what new treatments and vaccines were on the horizon. And I'd always ask you, how are you feeling? So I'll start there. How are you feeling today? I feel good. I. Uh, I, I feel really proud of the work we did here in New Mexico for the pandemic. I think I feel grateful for all the folks who really did all the work. I kind of helped organize the work and was a spokesperson, but there was an enormous amount of work and most of it I didn't do myself. And I think I feel uh, happy that we have protected a lot of New Mexicans and, and probably saved thousands of lives as a result of the various things we did right away at the beginning of the pandemic. And just on a personal level, I'm, I'm getting a little bit more sleep these days. And so I feel rested and, and content, I think, with uh, what's what all we and the team have accomplished over the past four years and uh, excited to see what's next. How long were your work days 
in say the, the deep throes of the pandemic, you know, were we 12, 14 hours? That's my guess. But how long were they? You know, I get up at four in the morning and, uh, oh, man. but I didn't start work then. I think the earliest meeting I ever had was maybe a 6am meeting. I had some regular 630 in the morning meetings and certainly for most of it started at seven and then did work, did work into the evening, most evenings. So I would say probably 14 hour days, usually took Friday nights off and hung out with my wife, but then also worked quite a bit on the weekends, Saturdays. And Sundays because so much was going on. I think it was at least 80 hour weeks there for a year or more. And uh, I always, my joke was that I never ever thought I would ever have another job where I worked harder than I did during my internship, you know, after medical school, which was 80, 90 hours a week. And I think this at least tied it if it didn't wow. beat it, particularly the first year, year and a half. Going back to, you know, your most recent sort of, uh, position with state government. You were appointed by Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham in 2019, the beginning of her administration. You're also a board certified geriatrician. You've been in primary care, working as a physician in that field for 30 years. We also understand, you know, that you continued juggling as well the private practice physician work during the work of the pandemic and your role with state government. How did you juggle it all? Um, you probably to get a more accurate take on that, you should talk to my practice partners at Senior Healthcare at <laughs> University of New Mexico. I think they might be more honest and say he didn't juggle it very <laughs> oh well. Boy. But uh, I think, you know, the I think we have an electronic record now. And so it's possible to converse with patients, you know, through the messaging systems of that. It's possible to review labs. It's possible to, you know, really do an awful lot of work just from home. And so it was easier in that context. I think it was a little bit harder not seeing people in person. And we went for about a year or more just doing Zoom medical visits with people to kind of keep up with their medical issues. Uh, but, yeah, it's really Dr. Schlau, the medical director, and everybody who kind of bailed uh, bailed me out and covered my in-basket when I wasn't, wasn't able to get to it uh, were really helpful. But I think for me – Seeing patients is sort of really grounding and sort of who I am at my core is sort of more of a scientist and a physician. And so it did actually help to spend that time actually doing patient care every other Monday because it kind of brought me back to my roots and reminded me, you know, why are we doing all the stuff that we're doing during the pandemic? I think, you know, you mentioned I'm a geriatrician. Virtually all my patients are over 75 and Almost all of them are over 80. And so that was the high risk group um, at the beginning of the pandemic. They got smart. My uh, those my people there, my 80 year old plus people got smart and stayed indoors and wore masks and took really good care of themselves. And uh, so that early death rate came down quite a bit. But I think it was actually really helpful to stay connected to patient care. And, you know, when Paxlovid came out. It was very helpful for me to understand the challenges for physicians and pharmacists of prescribing that and figuring out ways of how to do that more quickly and better and making sure it was integrated into all the electronic medical records in the state before it was even available, which was um, at least it, that did occur in the bigger systems in the state. So I think staying in touch with patients and being part of a practice and working in the medical record was actually helpful, I think, in 
advancing some of what we did to try to improve care. I want to mention too, that this is something I know from our previous discussions, you always made it a point, like you said, you woke up at 4am, but you didn't start work right away. It seemed like you also had an intentional self-care regimen that I always found that probably helped, I'm assuming. Yeah, no, it was, it was actually critical. Just imagine that we all have a certain level of stress in our lives and a certain amount of coping, you know, that we have for it. And when stress goes up, we tend to drop our coping mechanisms. And I learned a long time ago that when stress goes up, I should increase my coping mechanisms. And so getting up every morning and do some reading, I do some journaling, reflect on the previous day. Um, I have a lot of daily reading books. I read like a dozen one-page chapters in those. And and then uh, my wife gets up and we meditate. And usually we went outside and exercised or exercised inside. Um, and I still do that. And I think that burns up all my excess adrenaline before I can even start working. So I'm a little calmer and can take things more in stride and just accept the way things are when that's the right thing to do and be motivated to change them when that's the right thing to do. Yeah, that's important. Let's go back a little bit also. That first press conference in March of 2020, where our own state government confirmed that COVID-19 had made its way to New Mexico. And by virtue of folks traveling to high-risk areas or issues who have active cases, we now have three cases, two in Socorro County, one in Bernalillo County. I remember seeing you standing next to the governor, and there was so much we didn't know about COVID at the time. Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham, I remember, had put on some hand sanitizer and talked about, you know, washing your hands and the importance of that. Looking back, can you enlighten us a little bit about what were the conversations like with the governor before that news conference? We were aware of the outbreak in um, in Wuhan, China, in um, January, February timeframe. We did some practice disaster exercises for the pandemic in, I think, late February. And so we kind of had a game plan. I think the absence of any reliable scientific data was a real initial handicap for us. And so what we decided to do is just basically act like this was another influenza pandemic and make decisions that we would make for influenza. I'm a big fan of the book, The Great Influenza by John Barry, and I just by coincidence had read it a second time in January of 2020. And so it was, everything was really, uh, it was, I'm in a men's book group and I picked that for the book we should read. Oh, wow. maybe, maybe someone else did, but nonetheless, it was, uh, um, it was really fresh in my mind. And I think, I think the, I think we decided early on to use influence as a surrogate sort of approach until we had more information about COVID. I also think we decided to, be as honest as we possibly could be about what we didn't know, which was everything initially and what we did know, which was nothing or almost nothing. And I think that served us well. I think as people have uh, gone back and reevaluated the communication that happened during the pandemic, I think one thing that science, the science community was accused of doing too much of is sort of stating everything as a fact. And I think, I think actually in New Mexico, we did a good job not doing that. We just, I, I remember countless times saying, I don't know. We don't know that yet. Or uh, we don't know exactly um, how that works or the science isn't really clear. So here's what I'm doing. I'm just going to tell you what I'm doing. I'm not saying that's the right thing, but 
And I think that helped a lot just to be honest about what we did and didn't know. You know, before we had any sort of real treatments or vaccines for COVID, New Mexico, along with much of the country, was looking at data from other parts of the world and sort of using viral forecasts to try and mitigate spread (laughs) here locally. One of the things that New Mexico did in the beginning was restricting mass gatherings, as we know, also requiring masks indoors came soon after imposing capacity limits at businesses and indoor spaces. Uh, Looking back now that you have hindsight, of course, is there anything you would have done differently in those early months of COVID? Well, the one that just nags and nags at me is uh, that I feel personally responsible for was requiring wearing masks when exercising outside. I think I would have not done that Mm. in retrospect. Well, lots of people out in public are wearing masks like the health department requested to slow the spread of COVID-19, but others aren't. Some of them are being shamed. So we asked, how important is it for you to be wearing a mask when you're outside, say on a walk or a run? We didn't have the data about how much safer you were outside than inside um, till later, but I think I think that was one that we did figure out was safer and then we did back off it. But um, I think what had happened was there were people out in public without masks, window shopping, and they would be, you know, like in Santa Fe on the plaza, someone would come up to them and ask them why they weren't wearing a mask and they would say they were exercising. And so Uh maybe we reacted to that a little bit, Mm -hmm. but I think that mostly the instincts were good. I think I know I'm going to continue to wear a mask on an airplane, probably an N95 forever, just because I'm tired of going and visiting my grandkids and coming back and having a respiratory infection when I get home. So that one won't change. Uh, I think on the business side, I think keeping that distance did help. It did help. I think the testing being ready and being number one in testing was a, Certainly wouldn't change that. I think being number one in getting everyone vaccinated, at least with the first round of the vaccine, wouldn't change that. I think all those Herculean efforts that we made were worthwhile. Um, it was interesting because uh, I got a lot of email during the pandemic and sometimes from list servers and th- like a thousand emails on a topic. And Some of them were pretty uncharitable and unkind. And it was interesting because most all of that feedback came by email and it was all very, very negative. And you just have to press on and not take it personally. But then last summer when things eased up a lot and I started getting out more and it still happens now, people come up to me and say, you know, we really appreciate um, all you did during the pandemic. And I watched you every week. Someone just told me this the other night. We were at a ballet and they, I watched you every, every week and, and you were always so calm and kind and gave us all the data. And so that made me feel really good. Cause I actually, frankly, had had three years of feeling like I'd done nothing but get people angry. And so uh, I think that, um, I think that that calmness and focus on the science, which people bring up to, was the right thing. And then I think the last thing at the very first press conference, which can't be brought up, you know, there's a picture of us and and we're just standing basically shoulder to shoulder without masks during this press conference. 
And on the way out, a reporter grabbed me and said, well, what do you think the biggest challenge of the pandemic is going to be? And I said, well, what, what do you mean? And so, well, like, do you think it's like going to be ventilators or PPE or, you know, what do you think? I said, oh, I said, oh, it'll be communication. And he said, communication, why do you say that? I said, because, you know, any communication is always the biggest problem we have at a time of crisis. And I think the investment we made early on working and partnering with the media was the best thing we did in the whole pandemic because there is just absolutely no way we could have gotten the word out on our own. And uh, and uh, and so I'm really that's one of the things I think I'm most proud of it is term, at least as part as far as the pandemic goes, is just that constant communication and getting all that data up online and giving people access to the information they needed to make their own personal decisions about how they were going to approach the pandemic. So I wouldn't change. And I also think, as I mentioned earlier, I think pretending it was influenza till we knew better served us very, very well. Uh, now, COVID is much more agile than influenza. It mutates more quickly. It is, you know, we've, we're dealing with more variants. Uh, one of the things I figured out, unfortunately, it took me two years, was in order to really win this battle, we just had to be more agile than the virus. And unfortunately, the virus was really agile. But I think we were pretty agile, too, here in New Mexico in terms of adapting. You kind of alluded to this, but I wanted to ask you about like the sort of polarizing public. We were one of the last states to really, quote, open back up fully. I'll use our neighbors in Texas as an example of yeah. what it seems like they were doing the complete opposite from what New Mexico was doing as far as keeping mask mandates and indoor capacity limits. I know the governor and you even faced a lot of criticism about those things from what it seems like was a very polarized public. And I was at those press conferences when you'd hear people either really wanting the mandates to stay or others wanting the government to let go of them. How did you handle that? And again, anything you wish you'd done differently? Um, great question. It was sort of my life for two and a half, three years. So it's it's really an important question. I think that the way one of the things I've learned in my life and maybe in my leadership roles is that anytime you have two opposing arguments that people just don't let go of, they're probably both wrong. Mm -hmm. And also the, the answer most of the time in that situation is somewhere in the middle. Mm -hmm. So I, I just, I don't know if I did it at press conferences, but certainly in our internal meetings, I talked a lot about the middle way and what, what's the middle way or what's the compromise or how do we get the best of both of these perspectives? Um, it's kind of like, I think the phenomenon that we experience is very much like the excellent documentation we now have that let's just say people either watch Fox News or CNN, mainly for the purpose of re reinforcing things they already believe and not mm -hmm. to get new information and enhance their way of thinking about it. And so I, it seemed kind of like that uh, to me. I think nationally there's a lot of talk now about how we – presented too many things as facts and not enough as uncertainties. But I felt like we did better at that in our state. I don't I don't think we held out much as fact when we really didn't have evidence for it, which was hard sometimes because I think we wanted to come out stronger on some issues and I didn't feel like we could. Uh, um, I think other what would we do differently? Um 
I answered every email. Wow. I actually answered every email. And then um, I left town uh, about a month ago to take care of a family medical issue. And I got on some listserv sent me 5,000 emails um, and I could check on my email now and see what it's up to, but it's just generating these emails from all these people that are identical. And I didn't, I decided I wasn't going to answer this. I, yeah. I said, that's oh. enough. You know, 5,000 emails is ridiculous, but I answered all the other ones and I'd say, thanks for your input. And oftentimes um, with the most polarizing messages, I said the same thing. It's like, thanks for contacting me. Appreciate you expressing your opinion. If you have any scientific evidence that you feel supports this opinion, please send it to me and my team. Our team will be happy to review it and put it into the mix. Now, I didn't get a lot of responses um, to that offer, but I got a few and it was helpful. It sounds like you took the approach over the last two, three years here of trying to contextualize decisions within all of the different realms that were dealing with COVID, whether it was businesses, retirement homes, you know, uh, using your own knowledge as a medical professional still in practice. Um, it sounds like there was just a lot of context that was really important to you yeah. decision-making. Yeah, I think, I, I think so. I also think, I think one thing that I had kept before me, you know, my journal every morning, uh, I asked myself this question, and I will till Friday, and then I'll probably stop asking it. But it's, will you serve the people with energy, intelligence, imagination, and love? And every day I would write yes. Some days I'd have a couple exclamation points, some days not. <laughs> and, you know, I think the thing I kept remembering is, you know, I'm serving all New Mexicans. I'm uh, uh, being the Secretary of Human Services. We have one million plus customers. I'm really serving all New Mexicans, and I should be equally intent on serving people who say highly uncharitable things about me as I should be serving people who say nice things about me. And I think that was really helpful perspective to understand that how mean or nice people were, wasn't a modulating factor of my commitment to serve the people of the state. We know the virtual press conferences, they became a part of your routine and the state's routine really for a long time, you know, you and the state epidemiologists, the governor, um, other players as well would often share data trends, the number of cases, how many people were in the hospital, how many people had died. Not every state though was doing these types of repeated weekly data driven updates. And we've talked a little bit about communication and how you felt that was so important is that a fair assessment? It seems like it is that communication was, was almost paramountly important within the response here. And, and did you ever compare yourself to what other states were doing? You know, I didn't because I didn't have time. Mm, okay. <laughs> I didn't really fair. have time to watch the news. Like the main way I found out when I was on the news was my friends would tell me, Oh, I saw you on the news, but I, I just didn't have time ever to really watch and learn. I did get a lot of feedback, particularly starting last summer when people were coming up to me and thanking me. Uh, a lot of people said, you know, I have friends in other states and they were just felt like they were completely in the dark. And some of them were watching what was you and what was going on in New Mexico because 
we had so much information. And, and so uh, I feel like we did a good job communicating. I really do. And, and I think that it got, you know, I did a presentation for doctors for a year and a half too, every week as well. And that was good. Um, I think that was helpful. It kept people up to speed. I know that our press conference data, you know, the graphs and things we show it at the press conference were showing up in emails I would get at UNM about what was going on with COVID. So, I, you know, that's gratifying. Another good reason for actually continuing to practice medicine. You can find out like actually are any of these messages getting out or, or are people hearing it? So that was good. And, uh, but I think again, like you mentioned, uh, communication was the critical piece. And I think also it's a good, it's a good antidote to accusations of uh, that we're hiding things or not being transparent. And, and I think that that's one of the problems with the, the, that interaction between the public and the government is it's not like everybody comes into the conversation with this abiding trust and strong confidence in government. Right. I mean, I don't, I'm not even sure I have that. And, uh, and so it was, I think, useful to just have all of everything out there. And actually there are hundreds and hundreds of emails that I answered, um, from people like, why aren't you telling us the truth about X? And I just sent a link to our website and said, check this out. Or the data you're looking for has actually been online now for the past year and a half, you know, whatever it was, but it was, it was actually the main antidote to uh, to the, that sort of sense, that accusation of us being hiding something from the public was just pointing them to where all the data was. Ultimately, COVID did really take a toll on the people and the communities here. We know people died. They got really sick. Then there was a huge mental health crisis emerging, right? People that were isolated, businesses shutting down. It's heavy stuff. And you always, to me, appeared to approach these tough topics in a very measured way and with some optimism for where we were headed. What was the hardest or most challenging thing that you were dealing with at the time? You mean on a personal level, Gabby, or do you mean anything? Yeah, that you'd like to share. Again, you appeared to us front facing, very measured and even optimistic in the really tough moments. So was there something that was really challenging for you that you struggled with? I think the biggest the biggest challenge for almost everybody who is really up to their necks and managing the pandemic in the state is just sustaining the effort, keeping it going, continuing the enthusiasm, the energy, well, the energy, intelligence, imagination, and love that we needed to actually do what we needed to do. And so I think that sustainability thing, I, for me, I think all that exercise and meditation and reading and journaling I did really helped me a lot, but I know, I think, I think that real answer to your question for what was the biggest challenge for me was helping keeping everyone else going, encouraging everyone else to take care of themselves. Um, so they wouldn't get burned out. Yeah, there was a lot of burnout, a lot of burnout nationally too. Uh, 30% of, you know, vacancy rates in public health departments across the country are 30% or higher now, kind of as a result of the pandemic. So I think just continuing to provide people encouragement, you know, when we'd have a lull in the case counts, kind of almost demanding everybody 
take some time off and take a break. I know this last year at DOH, I sort of said you are forbidden from losing your paid time off because you didn't use it up. I, I didn't give people enough warning. Probably said this in October. So you better use up any <laughs> excess time off. I don't want anyone to lose uh, any time off as a result of not taking it. So that that sort of stuff, I think, caring for the people around me and making sure they were okay and spotting because it wasn't really an environment. Everyone was so busy and working so hard where people had a lot of time to keep an eye on everybody else. And so that was one of my jobs. I, and sometimes I felt like the, I know everyone was doing it, but I felt like fundamentally responsible for ensuring that key people were doing okay. And, um, and that was hard even when, before I was at DOH, because a lot of those people weren't even in my department and working to try to keep them going. But um, I think that's probably the main thing. We're at this point now where, you are retiring on Friday. Um, when you look back at the whole arc of everything, do you have a particular moment or thing that you are really proud of here in your time? Do I have to restrict my answers to COVID now or no. could I? No, no, It's actually, no. you know, it's funny because I just killed myself practically on COVID. But the thing that I'm actually most proud of was figuring out a way to end the waiting list for people with developmental disabilities to get into services. It's been, it's called the DD wait list. And it's been there for 30 years. And the oldest people on the wait list were like fasten your seatbelt here, like from 2008 and 2009, they'd been waiting. And it turned out that the program administering the program happens in DOH, but the financing and the insurance part of it is in HSD. So the biggest part was just getting the Department of Health Secretary and the Human Services Secretary to be of one mind about it, which was it was a little bit of a struggle, but I was able to do that since I had both jobs. And then we had this funding source from the federal government related to the pandemic, but was not focused on fighting COVID, but home and ba- home-based community services. And so we figured out a way to actually end the uh, waiting list. And and as of today, every single person has now been invited off that wait list into receiving full services if they want. And these are, these are, these are 5,000 of the most vulnerable people in New Mexico. I think number two, number two would be that I think you, you may remember uh, that, the human services department kind of destroyed behavioral health in our state back in 2013 and 2014. And so when we got here in 2019, it was still just a horrible mess. And again, these, this is data you can look up online, but we've actually doubled the number of providers that provide services for Medicaid uh, clients in the state uh, from 2018 till now. And we've actually doubled the number of visits for behavioral health. So contrary to this crisis and this total absence, and we still have work to do. I mean, there's still more we need to do in behavioral health, but I'm, I'm really proud of the fact that we've actually doubled. I mean, when do you ever hear about something like that doubling? And so it's like 102%, I think. And so I think the work in behavioral health, the work on the DD waiver are uh, really way, way up there. And part of the reason I think is, 
that COVID was a major emergency and we came in and we did a lot of stuff in the short run to sort of stabilize things. And we did save lives and that's really important, but you know, the pandemic eventually will wind down. We hope and go away. Whereas the changes we're making in behavioral health and in the uh, developmental disabilities hopefully will last forever in New Mexico. Governor Lujan Grisham just started her second term, and I'll say at least to us, it was surprising to hear your retirement announcement. Can you share with us what was it that made you feel like, okay, I'm ready to step away from this position? Number one was I'd begun those conversations with her last summer and just said, I don't think it's possible for one person to do both of these jobs, you know, anyway. And I've you know, even though I'm still hanging in there doing it, I, I think I need to step back. And so I told her as of January 1st, I couldn't do both. And then we talked later in the in the fall about just me actually retiring. I certainly am old enough to retire like I'm 70 years old. So I think that's old enough. <laughs> uh, and I think also I do love taking care of patients. And I felt like I really I really want to get back and do more of that than what I'm doing, I'm a teacher and I love teaching residents. And so, and I felt like whatever debt I had uh, left to repay society on January 1st, 2019, I believe I have paid in full <laughs> as a result of my service uh, to the state. So I think it was a, a sense of feeling like a lot of work was had been accomplished that I was really, really proud of. Uh, a lot of were a, a wonderful team in both DOH and HSD that have been pulled together that I was really proud of. And it was kind of time for me to step back now and let some new, a new generation of public health and human services leaders step in and, and take the reins. This is a broader question about the COVID response now when you uh, think about who's next taking the reins. And we mentioned this at the top of the show, the federal emergency status is ending in May. So COVID will, in a lot of ways, be treated like the flu is what it seems like. No more free tests in the mail from the federal government or free vaccines without insurance, for instance. Those are few components of the end of the federal declaration. Does anything about the change concern you? I mean, we know it was bound to happen at some point. Or maybe how do you feel about where we're headed next? I think it's a little bit frightening, Um I think that the Department of Health will find a way to cover vaccines for people who don't have insurance. I think that's part of the mission, and that will continue. I think Medicaid will continue to cover everything for everyone, and that's half of our state. Um, I think the thing that I worry about more right now is when the pandemic winds down, there are a lot of people who've gotten benefits, and those benefits will change. We know that SNAP benefits are going to decrease by about a third for most, almost 500,000 people here in New Mexico on March 1st, then the new benefit will be lower as the pandemic winds down. In May, we will start to see somewhere in the neighborhood of 100,000 people winding off of Medicaid and not having insurance. Now we hope to move as many people as we can over to the state health insurance exchange, but it's sort of a one-two punch, if you will, if you're on Medicaid and SNAP, um, and uh, SNAP, I think, is going to be a little bit more critical because, you know, with health care, the main time you really ever think about your health insurance mainly 
is when you're sick, right? And you have to pull that card out, but you have to eat every day, you know? And so mm-hmm. uh, if you're in the hospital when your Medicaid decline, you know, goes away, that's a big deal. But if you don't have enough money for food and you're used to a new budget. And so we did a press conference a few weeks ago on the ending of SNAP or the change in SNAP benefits. So I think that the economic boost that New Mexico got is going to go away. Uh, how will healthcare fare, which is, Healthcare is already really, really struggling with turnover as well and finances. And how is healthcare going to fare with $1 billion less, you know, uh, of money in that industry in the next that will occur naturally between May of this year and May of next year? So I'm, I, those are the things I worry about more is all the extra help we got from the federal government, which I'm really glad we got. And I'm very proud of the efforts we did to get it. But how do we help people now move back to a SNAP benefit that's a third last and make sure that they get some other kind of insurance coverage so they're getting cared for when they're sick? Last question I have for you, Dr. Scrace. What do you hope people remember you for? Hmm. Well, let me think. That's a good question. I have a couple answers, different categories. So I think with respect to the general public, I hope that um, people remember me as being someone who used science when we had it to make decisions about how to approach the pandemic. And also, when we didn't have science, was honest enough to admit that. So I I think I would say that for uh, for just to work with the public that, you know, and and with that goes sort of a a level of fairness and openness to all parties and not just one point of view. I think at work with my teams, uh, typically what people say about working for me, which I like is that um, they've never worked as hard as they worked (laughs) when they were working for me. They never learned as much as they did when they were working with me. They've never been on a team that's accomplished as much uh, as they did when they were on a team with me. And then lastly is they have some fun. And I hope that's how folks feel. I, I take a really deep interest in the people who work hard for me and I actually stay in touch with most of them and sort of offer my, uh, free um, support service for the rest of my life anyway, you know, if they ever need it. And a lot of people take me up on it and call when they're thinking about a different job or something like that. So I think maybe being remembered for those things, but also being a boss who really cared about them. Yeah. And and I think the only thing, you know, it's funny because I think one thing that the public doesn't really get to see much of is my sense of humor. And I have a very active sense of humor, but you know, it's, there's not, there not as many opportunities to use it during a pandemic. Right. Yeah. Anything we didn't ask you that you wanted to share? I really, really liked it when this past summer, so many people came up and said that the press conferences we did and the information we provided really made them feel safe. And I had no idea that I was doing that at all, at all. I thought I was giving people information. And so that was kind of a real learning for me is sometimes 
giving people information and tools they need to make their own decisions really does confer to them like a sense of feeling safe and confident in what they're doing. And so I really like that. I, I would love the idea of people remembering me as making them feel safe. That's awesome. Yeah. We certainly just remember um, the frequency of those news conferences and the ability to ask questions. I think we all probably think we wish we could have asked 50 questions each reporter, but we know there <laughs> yeah. was no time for that. It was kind of one and done, but um, it certainly was an avenue where we all got to learn a lot more about what the state was doing and where those areas of struggle were, but also where those positive areas were. I think looking back at uh, the right. frequency of those uh, news conferences, th there was just a ton of information there and didn't really see that in many other states. So yeah. certainly notable. We appreciate it, Dr. Grace, and we wish you a happy and restful retirement. Thank you for Thank your time you. again. Thanks again to Dr. David Grace for taking the time to chat with us ahead of his departure from state government and his leadership there. And also a thank you for always taking my request for continued Zoom interviews throughout the pandemic. We got into it in this discussion, but he did care a lot about getting the message out and just being as transparent as possible about what the state did and did not know during those years. Yeah, I think it is remarkable to hear that he replied to every email he received that's that says a lot because um i just know from a reporting sense there are many times we never you get replies when we're asking questions of you know whether it's public information officers or whatnot um many examples over the last several years of that um, but also over the career um it just says a lot to somebody who is willing to literally respond to everybody no matter what. And I'm sure some of those emails maybe weren't the most pleasant, but um, sounds like he wanted to make it a point to make sure that people knew they were being heard. So that I think is uh, very, very unique in a, uh, a state leader there. We appreciate you joining us, listening in to this week's episode of the New Mexico News Podcast. You can reach me at Chris McKee TV and also chris.mckee at krqe.com. And you can reach me at gabrielle.burkhart at krqe.com via email and gburknm on social media. Thank you all for listening. <laughs>